Hello, and welcome to the third episode of a podcast series featuring the NIDDK's Urologic Diseases in America report. The project has been funded in whole or in part with federal funds from the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. Join Drs. Kevin McVary and Charles Welliver with hosts Brian Metlaga as they present BPH findings from the Urologic Diseases in America report. Hello, this is Brian Metlaga, Professor of Urology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and I'd like to welcome you to this installment of the American Urological Association's podcast series uh, that they have graciously uh, chosen to feature the Urologic Diseases in America project, which is a NIDDK-funded effort to characterize the burden of urologic disease uh, in the United States. Um, and uh, what we've been doing is focusing the podcast series on different disease processes or conditions studied. Uh, and so in this installment, we'll focus on benign prostatic hyperplasia. And with, uh, with us today, um, we have uh, Dr. Kevin McVary, Professor of Urology at Oyola University Medical Center, Dr. Chuck Welliver, Associate Professor of Urology at Albany Medical College, and they've served as really the uh, subject matter or content experts that have driven the um, BPH portion of the urologic disease uh, project forward. So, Chuck, Kevin, I'd like to thank you for joining us in this podcast series. Great to be here, Brian. Thanks for the invite. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, same. Thanks so much for letting us be part of this. Yeah, and so um, so I'll open up just with a, a first question, um, which is just, you know, essentially a broad question as you were coming to the, the UDA project of what are the knowledge gaps that you would see in the area of BPH? And what can an initiative such as the Urologic Diseases in America project, the NIDDK sponsors, uh, bring to try to bridge some of those those knowledge gaps? I'll go first, if you don't mind, um, Chuck. Um, so, I mean, first, I, I asked, I'd answer the first, the second question first, and that's that, um, you know, when you think about the importance of Lutz BPHs into the urology specialty and to the uh, demographic, there is surprising little um, investment in research in BPH. So, um, this type of entity is really a, a critical point for us to try and um, bolster support, bolster, bolster interest, and better understand, understand the, uh, the knowledge deficits in our field. And, and so to answer some of that, one of the things that the Urologic Diseases Project can do um, as a result of the funding from NIDDK is they can purchase various data sets. And so two of the really critical data sets for BPH investigation that have been used in this project are uh, CMS data, so Medicare data, and then also data from Optum. Can you speak a little to to what uh, you know the how those two data sets complement each other and and what we can learn from them? So this was an important thing to really have both of these data sets together because we you know in this country at least we find that you know at sixty five men tip over from using private insurance into getting into the Medicare realm. So we kind of have trouble finding following men across time in general with just our sort of fragmented medical records, but in particular, as they cross over that age group, it's difficult to kind of see what happens to guys. Of course, you know, in their 60s, that's when we really see a lot of the BPH problems start to occur. So to be able to have comprehensive data sets 
with Optum that went down to guys that were 40 and then Medicare, which will really kind of extend us out to the end of life. We really got a really nice ability both as cross-sectionally to look at the whole group and then also nice longitudinal data to kind of follow guys over time. So the use of these large administrative claim databases has really let us capture a large number of patients and then really be able to follow them uh, in an accurate way throughout the study period. And so then with, with the only thing I would add is that when we have these big data sets, we can get a better estimate of the total economic burden of Let's BPH, but also uh, ask questions about, hey, how are urologists behaving in terms of guidelines? And it has a lot of other ramifications for our specialty. Yeah, and, and so that raises kind of the, or speaks to the next question I was, I was gonna ask, which is what, you know, uh, at your, first pass of the data analyses, what, what did we learn about prevalence and treatment of men with BPH from using these two complementary data sets? Um, I'll, I'll try to answer that, Brian, as best I can. Um, the, one of the big messages uh, right out of the gate was these age-specific trends in Lutz BPH uh, management, um, increasing usage of medications, which we expected, and then surprisingly, um, Big, maybe not surprisingly, big transitions in medication use as men uh, transition from, let's say, their 50s to their 60s. And the other is um, medication increases over time, but interestingly, surgery procedures nearly uniformly decrease over time. So as you... Um, uh... So as you look at the different age cohorts, you're seeing the, those variations in who selects what type of treatment first? Right. Medication use, usage increases over time. Surgery decreases over time. But then within each one of those age ranges, they have their own pe peculiar pattern. Like um, younger men may choose procedures, which if they cho choose procedures, may choose those which would have less impact on sexual function. We don't see that as much in our older cohorts. Um, and, you know, obviously this, this is a, uh, a pattern which is likely to increase in the next, next go-round. Yeah. And so one thing that we, you know, talk about all of us in the, the urology field and really in all surgical fields is trying to understand what quality of care is. And, and it's obviously, uh, you know, sort of... Um, difficult to define and means different things to different people. And, and one challenge is always, how do we measure quality? Um, do, you, do you have a sense from UDA data, you know, these kind of high level administrative data sets that, that encompass, you know, millions of, of, of uh, data files, of what can we begin to learn about quality of BPH care? One of the things we looked at, uh, particularly with this data set, was the use of testing around the time of diagnosis. You know, the, the AUA guidelines are these very large projects, these, you know, meant to really use evidence to sort of make it both a good standard of care and also to use testing that has value. And so one of the things we did uh, look at or currently in the process of looking at is looking at how, you know, guideline adherence uh, is occurring within this, these data sets. And an interesting, interesting part of this data set, too, is it looked at both primary care and urologists. It was really anybody that was going to you know, co-demand is having BPH. So we saw both sides of that within this data set. So we're not really just sampling one or the other. We're really getting the whole concept of BPH care. And then I, I think, um, Dr. McFerry, I think you had mentioned 
previously just, you know, one of the, the values of having these large uh, data sets too, uh, especially CMS and Optum data, or, or Dr. Welliver, it may have been you that mentioned this, but that we, we can start to understand about cost of care. And what were you able to learn about cost uh, in the analyses? Well, you know, at this juncture, we're really excited to just now open that can of worms. Um, you know, that is obviously a huge uh, topic. It's obviously a huge cost. Um, and we're now just starting to delve into that. So I'd say, you know, stay tuned, um, look forward. What's interesting when we look, you see um, uh, the TURP has a certain resilience. NIST um, come and go. TURP, particularly in our older groups, remain very constant. Yeah, and, and so I'll ask each of you separately, what, what was the most exciting or you know, shocking, surprising thing that, uh, that each of you learned um, uh, as you did the analysis? Really, I mean, a bunch of things, but one of the things that I thought was the most interesting was you know, sort of how often age really made a huge difference in what patient selection uh, for treatments occurred. You know, we found younger guys really being much more cognizant of sexual function related uh, treatments. And, you know, of the ones we kind of sampled in the study, we have subsequently found out they're not the greatest for symptomatic improvement. So really, you know, patients may have a certain, uh, you know, set of guidelines or thoughts about what they want their treatment to look like and clinicians may have a different one and really kind of need to keep in mind that we need to have both of these goals involved when we talk to patients about treatment options for let's be ph i'd say my um surprising thing is um i don't want to call it normal practice or inertia but change change in let's say surgical choice uh, that comes very slow i i was a little bit surprised to see that um, interested to see what we do in this new new age going forward. We have different types of myths available for our patients, but um, you know, goals of patients and goals of clinicians may not, not always be in sync. And so it seems like um, our our time tested procedures uh, they don't want to go extinct any to any anytime soon. Yeah, and um, so when we look at the UDA. It's, it's obviously a, a very broad project. There's a lot of resources that the NIDDK brings to bear in it. Um, a lot of time that, that both of you have spent looking at the analyses. Our colleagues at Social Scientific Systems, um, Dr. Julia Ward, Dr. Lydia Feinstein, who um, you know obviously also spend hours with the epidemiology and the programming considerations for the analyses. So it's, it's a lot of resources put into this. So what is the value that the urologic community gets out of the UDA? It's, uh, oh, sorry, it's multifaceted, of course. You know, we keep worrying about in the future, you know, shrinking resources, cost-effective care. You know, these are sort of buzzwords that get, you know, sent around. And so I think that that, you know, this potentially looks at that and points us in that direction about, you know, what are we doing for treatment options? What sort of testing are we doing? And hopefully eventually we can get to the point of really figuring out, you know, what testing is best for patients based on their goals. Um, and their their wants and needs, in addition to doing things that are cost effective and actually you know lead to symptomatic improvement. Now, I'd add only uh, agree with everything Chuck just said, but I'd say there's a lot of health policy implications. Um, this type of analysis might tell us about unmet needs going forward, and then ultimately, do our policies, do our guideline efforts, do these behaviors we're trying to track 
do they make a difference in the care of our patients? These are questions that UDA can answer. Yeah, and, and so building off of that, as, as you work forward, what, what questions would you like to see the future uh, iterations of the UDA project address that, that may increase our understanding of the epidemiology of, of BPH? I think there's a lot here, so Kevin and I will probably both want to crack at this one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, the one I think that's really important and this kind of slightly piggybacking on what I just said, you know, we don't have a good way to follow guys after treatment. You know, so many BPH studies are single center, you know, we get these five-year, um, you know, rates of retention in the study of 40, 50 percent. So we just don't know what happens to guys after a lot of these treatments over time. And when we talk about cost-effective care, if you're going to go through the you know, whole rigmarole of taking out of the OR, giving him general anesthesia, spending all this money, you want to make sure that he's not back on meds in a year or two years or maybe even 10 years. So I think, you know, using the ability to follow these guys well over time, it'd really be nice to know what our surgical retreatment rates are in 10 years or 15 years. And if a certain technology is not getting us a, a good value there, then maybe it should hit the old dustbin or maybe we should kind of bring something else in that could hopefully do that. I'm, I'm interested in, in, in particularly uh, disparity of care. And you know, I think um, if in a perfect world, if we could really uh, get good granular data on care in rural areas, metro areas, um, get a better idea of care by zip code or RUC codes, that would be, um, I think, really helpful in terms of better understanding BPH care in America. Yeah, and, and I think uh, among the um, uh, things lost in the AUA annual meeting um, this year, which obviously was canceled due to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, um, but there was to be a, a good amount of uh, uh, data that you would be sharing from this project on that program uh, and abstracts, whether moderated posters or, or podiums. And I, I know there are also multiple peer-reviewed publications that are uh, either in press or have been published already about the um, uh, what you know what we've talked about today, and so I, I think that's a, a source that um, uh, you know the listeners can certainly go into uh, uh, for more detail. Um, I'd like to to thank both of you, Dr. Welver, Dr. McBerry, for uh, being a part of uh, this uh, this uh, installment of the AUA's podcast series. Been a pleasure, Brian. Yeah, Brian, thanks for having us. Yeah, and um, uh, of course, we, uh, on behalf of the Urologic Disease in America Project, would, would like to thank the uh, AUA for uh, providing this uh, venue, for sharing uh, the findings from the Urologic Diseases in America Project. Um, and as we uh, continue to work through the different uh, urologic conditions, uh, this will be a, a forum whereby we can share the findings with the urologic community. And then hopefully from this, there can be a springboard into a deeper dive uh, into the, the published literature from the project. So again, I'd like to thank the NIDDK's support of this project. Um, thank Dr. McBerry, Dr. Welliver, uh, for your uh, role in, in looking at the data for uh, BPH and um, the Social Scientific Systems Group for uh, providing the uh, analytic expertise uh, that's required to do this work. So. Um, Hope this was a uh, enjoyable listen, um, and I uh, look forward to speaking with everyone again.